This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the night sky and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Venus is a brilliant object in the evening sky. It is at its greatest angular distance from the sun at the end of October, when it will set over four hours after the sun, shortly after midnight. This makes it readily visible all evening. In mid-October, Venus passes the first magnitude star Antares, the two being about 1.5 degrees at their closest. Mercury and Mars are both going to be more or less unobservable during October. Both are at conjunction with the sun. Mars on the 8th, and Mercury 36 hours later. Following conjunction, they both move into the morning sky, rising in twilight shortly before the sun. Jupiter and Saturn are both easily visible in the evening sky. They rise early in the afternoon and set well after midnight, with Jupiter being about 80 minutes behind Saturn. Both planets are stationary during October, Saturn on the 11th, and Jupiter a week later. The moon will be a little over 3 degrees above Saturn on the 14th and a similar distance from Jupiter on the 15th. On September the 18th, NASA's InSight lander celebrated its 1,000th Martian day, or Sol, by measuring one of the biggest, longest-lasting Mars quakes the mission has ever detected. The Temblor is estimated to be about a magnitude 4.2 and shook for nearly an hour and a half. This is the third major quake InSight has detected in a month. On August 25th, the mission seismometer detected two quakes of magnitudes 4.2 and 4.1. For comparison, a magnitude 4.2 quake has five times the energy of the mission's previous record holder, a magnitude 3.7 quake, detected in 2019. InSight's domed wind and thermal shield covers the lander seismometer, called Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, or SIZE. The image was taken on the 110th Martian date, or SOL, of the mission. The mission studies seismic waves to learn more about Mars' interior. The waves change as they travel through a planet's crust, mantle, and core, providing scientists a way to peer deep below the surface. What they learn can shed light on how all rocky worlds form, including Earth and its moon. The quakes might not have been detected at all had the mission not taken action earlier in the year, as Mars' highly elliptical orbit took it farther from the Sun. Lower temperatures required the spacecraft to rely more on its heaters to keep warm. That, plus dust buildup on InSight solar panels, has reduced the lander's power levels, requiring the mission to conserve energy by temporarily turning off certain instruments. The team managed to keep the seismometer on by taking a counterintuitive approach. They used InSight's robotic arm to trickle sand near one solar panel in the hopes that, as wind gusts carried it across the panel, the granules would sweep off some of the dust. The plan worked, and over several dust-clearing activities, the team saw power levels remain fairly steady. Now that Mars is approaching the Sun once again, power is starting to inch back up. 
If we hadn't acted quickly earlier this year, we might have missed out on some great science, said Insight's principal investigator, Bruce Bannert of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which leads the mission. Even after more than two years, Mars seems to have given us something new with these two quakes, which have unique characteristics. While the September 18 quake is still being studied, scientists already know, about, already know more about the August 25th quakes. The magnitude 4.2 event occurred about 8,500 kilometers from InSight, the most distant Templar the lander has detected so far. Scientists are working to pinpoint the source and which direction the seismic waves traveled, but they know the shaking occurred too far to have originated where InSight has detected almost all of its previous large quakes, Cerberus Fosse, a region roughly 1,600 kilometers away, where lava may have flowed within the last few million years. One especially intriguing possibility is Valles Marineris, the epically long canyon system that scars the Martian equator. The approximate center of that canyon system is 9,700 kilometers from InSight. To the surprise of scientists, the August 25th quakes were two different types as well. The magnitude 4.2 quake was dominated by slow, low-frequency vibrations, while fast, high-frequency vibrations characterized the magnitude 4.1 quake. The magnitude 4.1 quake was also much closer to the lander, only about 925 kilometers away. That's good news for seismologists. Recording different quakes from a range of distances and with different kinds of seismic waves provides more information about a planet's interior structure. This summer, the mission scientists used previous Mars quake data to detail the depth and thickness of the planet's crust and mantle, plus the size of its molten core. Despite their differences, the two August quakes do have something in common other than being big. Both occurred during the day, the windiest, and to a seismometer, noisiest time on Mars. InSight's seismometer usually finds Mars quakes at night, when the planet cools off and winds are low. But the signals from these quakes were large enough to rise above any noise caused by wind. Looking ahead, the missions team is considering whether to perform more dust cleanings after Mars-Solar conjunction, when Earth and Mars are on opposite sides of the Sun. Because the sun's radiation can affect radio signals, interfering with communications, the team will stop issuing commands to the lander during that period, though the seismometer will continue to listen for quakes throughout conjunction. Well, more about Mars and perhaps an explanation for some of these quakes. Explosive supervolcanoes once tore apart the surface of Mars, spewing millions of tons of ash and noxious gases into the atmosphere. Back then, Mars was volcanically active. It hosts the largest volcano in the solar system, Olympus Mons, and evidence of past vigor remains in volcanic regions and dormant cones. But evidence for explosive volcanism has been missing, leading some scientists to think that the planet only produced shield-type cone-forming eruptions. Now, a group of researchers has spotted massive deposits of volcanic ash buried in a region of Mars known as Arabia Terra. The researchers were scoping out the area because it hosts a series of irregularly shaped craters of unknown origin. A 2013 study suggested that these craters looked like calderas, the empty holes left behind by massive volcanic explosions. These type of super eruptions have occurred on Earth as well, the Toba in 74,000 BCE and Taupo 340,000 BCE supervolcanoes are good examples. Evidence shows that these volcanoes launched millions of tons of ash and gases into the atmosphere, enough to obscure sunlight for several years and cool the globe. If the same thing happened on Mars, proving it was a matter of finding, proving it was a matter of finding the ash, 
Arabia Terra is an area of rugged terrain surrounded by a network of deep ravines. Like road cuts, these ravines cut through the terrain, exposing the hidden layers in their walls. The team looked at the slopes of seven of these ravines from orbit using instruments on board NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and spotted layers of minerals with the composition of chemically altered volcanic ash. The team also tapped into global circulation models to try to check if the thickness of the deposits matches what would be expected from an explosive eruption. The models are actually pretty good for predicting what direction the wind blows, says Patrick Welly from the University of Maryland, who led the new study. The same models can be tuned to use a slightly thicker atmosphere because maybe that's what was happening on Mars 3 billion years ago. With this method, the researchers confirmed that the ash deposits matched predictions from the model, being thicker closer to the calderas, reaching one kilometer at its deepest point. They become thinner, although still hundreds of meters thick, farther away from the calderas. From the deposits that we do see from these types of eruptions, they probably last for weeks to months at a time, where they're exploding and pushing out a bunch of material, Welly explains. So it's not just one explosion, but it's a series of sustained eruptions for many days, up to months perhaps. In order to produce the massive ash deposits observed in Arabia Terra, Researchers estimate that between 1,000 and 2,000 explosive eruptions occurred over a period of 500 million years. That means one supervolcano erupted every 1.8 to 3.5 million years. The volume of ash they produced accounts to about 30 to 60 percent of the total volume of material required to form Olympus Mons. Mars is a little planet compared to Earth, but it actually looks like early on in its history it was quite an active little planet, says Alexandra Matelanovac from the Applied Physics Laboratory at John Hopkins University, co-author of the new study. At one point, Mars and Earth probably were very similar to each other climate-wise and atmosphere-wise, and certainly geology-wise. While other researchers think the current work is a step forward in the right direction, they aren't fully convinced. We still do not know for sure whether powerful volcanic eruptions took place in this region on early Mars, says Peter Bros from the Czech Academy of Sciences, who wasn't involved in the present study. Erosion and younger resurfacing events could have destroyed or modified the evidence about such activity. Nevertheless, Bros adds, this work is bringing us a bit closer to such an answer. It is showing us that a powerful and repetitive process has to be responsible for the formation of these enigmatic deposits. The team plans to continue looking for more spots where they can measure the thickness of the ash deposits with the goal of building a more detailed regional map of the deposits distribution. Now that we have seven points, we want to increase that to 100 points or something so that, we can say, so that when we can say where the ash might have been, well, he says... In addition to the question of how these volcanoes affected the Martian climate, there's also the question of why so many calderas are concentrated in this single region. On Earth, volcanoes capable of supereruptions are dispersed across the planet and coexist with other types of volcanoes. Mars has many other types of volcanoes, such as Olympus Mons and the three major mountains that make up the Tharsis-Montes chain, Ascreus Mons, Pavonis Mons, and Arcea Mons, So far, Arabia Terra is the only region on Mars where evidence of supervolcanoes has been found. This raises questions about whether calderas were concentrated in regions here on Earth, but have eroded physically over time, or moved due to plate tectonics. In the meantime, this research could also inform future searches for supervolcanoes on other bodies in our solar system. For instance, Jupiter's moon Io is known for releasing powerful lava plumes that can reach 500 kilometers into space.
There's also evidence that volcanic activity continues on Venus, which creates the possibility that there are caldera clustered in certain regions. It will be fascinating to see what role these and other geological processes could have played in the evolution of extraterrestrial bodies. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 1431 AM and 104.7 FM. This program is Starry Nights. A fireball embellished the night sky over India on January the 23rd, 1870. Accompanied by a thunderous detonation, the fiery mass crashed into the village, crashed in the village of Nedagola with enough force to leave the bystanders stunned. The impact left behind a bit over four kilograms of cosmic rock, the Nedagola meteorite. The meteorite would be just another one among thousands found on Earth if it weren't for its unusual composition. Researchers have long tried to understand its origin, and now they might have solved the mystery. In a recent study, scientists found that the Nedagola meteorite is a product of a collision between two asteroids of distinct origin. Its unique history opens up a new window into the research of the early stages of the solar system formation. Meteorites are time capsules that illuminate the era of planet formation. The solar system formed from a cloud of interstellar gas and dust that collapsed under its own gravity. Particles within the resulting protoplanetary disk collided and stuck, forming ever-large planetesimals, which became the parent bodies of the meteorites found on Earth. Meteorites come in different flavors. Depending on whether iron or silicates dominate, meteorites are traditionally classified as iron, stony, or stony iron. Composition also depends on whether the meteorites originate from bodies that underwent melting, or whether the parent body was unmelted and therefore more pristine. By these classifiers, Nedagola is an ungrouped iron meteorite. But one can also look at isotopes. Isotopes are elements with the same number of protons but a different number of neutrons, and they can carry a lot of information, including the time of a rock's formation. About 10 years ago, the community realized that there is an isotopic dichotomy in meteoritic, meteoritic material, says graduate student Fridolin Spitzer from the University of Munster, who was first author of the new study. Cosmochemists thus use isotopes to classify meteorites of all sorts, regardless of their chemical composition, as either non-carbonaceous chondrite, NC, or the carbonaceous chondrite, CC. These groups were initially differentiated by the amount of carbon, but now the terms are used more generally. There is only one exception. Nedagola is the first one that does not consistently fall into one of the two categories, but seems to fall in between, says Spitzer. Scientists suspect that the two isotope classes formed in two different parts of the protoplanetary disk, the NCs in the disk inner part and the CCs in the outer solar system beyond the Jupiter's orbit. So where does that put Nedagola meteorite? After performing a new and independent analysis of the meteorite's composition, the team proposes that its unique isotopic imprint comes from a collision of NC and CC planetesimals. The two bodies collided, and this induced melting because of high-impact velocities, and it induced mixing of materials from these two bodies, explains Spitzer. Here things become interesting. Most meteorites originate from the asteroid belt, a region between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So the CC-type meteorites had to migrate to the inner part of the solar system at some point, otherwise the Nedagola meteorite couldn't exist. The reason why we have any CC material to analyze on Earth, which is in itself an NC body, is because during the disk evolution, planets like Jupiter migrated inwards and outwards, scattering material around the solar system, says Catherine Birmingham from Rutgers University. 
but the details are still murky. For example, did Jupiter's movements create the isotopic divide? And why did one region of the disk have a consistently different mixture of material compared to the other? With the Netagola meteorite, scientists obtained the first isotopic evidence that the NC and CC bodies mingled. Its composition suggests that at least the CC body had a metallic core. Furthermore, the formative collision couldn't have happened earlier than about 7 million years after the disk's formation. Such information measured for a larger sample of similar meteorites would be invaluable. I think it is important that, community does, that the community does more of this kind of work to see if we can figure out better time constraints on NCCC mixing, says Birmingham. There are a lot of ungrouped iron meteorites out there, and maybe this signature will be found in those that we haven't studied yet. All right, we're just going to take a break for a moment here, mention our sponsors, the Holtz Planetarium in Napier. The planetarium, unfortunately, is currently closed due to level two COVID restrictions and will not reopen again until the alert levels drop to level one. Once that happens, the planetarium is open to the general public on Sunday evenings, or will be open to the public on Sunday evenings from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m., with the main show starting at about 7.15 no bookings are required, so just front up any Sunday evening once we get to level one. Admission prices are $10 for adults, $6 for students and seniors, and $25 for a family of up to six. Show is suitable for all ages, lasts a little over an hour. We also do school programs and bookings for other groups as well. So if you're interested in finding out more about us, give us a call, 8 Three double four three four five, or you can visit our website www.holtplanetarium.org.nz. Once again, the planetarium will open once the COVID alert level drops to level one. Scientists have spotted a previously unrecognized feature of our Milky Way galaxy. A contingent of young stars and star-forming gas clouds is sticking out of one of the Milky Way's spiral arms, like a splinter poking out from a plank of wood. Stretching some 3,000 light-years, this is the first major structure identified with an orientation so dramatically different than the arms. Astronomers have a rough idea of the size and shape of the Milky Way's arms, but much remains unknown. They can't see the full structure of our home galaxy because Earth is inside it. It's akin to standing in the middle of Times Square and trying to draw a map of the island of Manhattan. Could you measure distances precisely enough to know if two buildings are on the same block or a few streets apart? And how could you hope to see all the way to the tip of the island with so many things in your way? To learn more, the authors of the new study focused on a nearby portion of one of the galaxy's arms, called the Sagittarius Arm. Using NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope prior to its retirement in January 2020, they sought out newborn stars nestled in the gas and dust clouds called nebula, where they form. Spitzer detects infrared light that can penetrate those clouds, while visible light, the kind human eyes can see, is blocked. Young stars and nebula are thought to align closely with the shape of the arms they reside in. To get a 3D view of the arm segment, the scientists used the latest data release from the European Space Agency Gaia mission to measure the precise distances to the stars. The combined data revealed that the long, thin structure associated with the Sagittarius arm is made of young stars moving at nearly the same velocity and in the same direction through space. A key property of spiral arms is how tightly they wind around a galaxy, said Michael Kuhn, an astrophysicist at Caltech and lead author of the new paper. This characteristic is measured by the arm's pitch angle. A circle has a pitch angle of zero degrees, and as the spiral becomes more open, the pitch angle increases. 
Most models of the Milky Way suggest that the Sagittarius arm forms a spiral that has a pitch angle of about 12 degrees. But the structure we examined really stands out at an angle of nearly 60 degrees. Similar structures, sometimes called spurs or feathers, are commonly found jutting off the arms of other spiral galaxies. For decades, scientists have wondered whether our Milky Way spiral arms are also dotted with these structures, or if they are relatively smooth. The newly discovered feature contains four nebula known for their breathtaking beauty. The Eagle Nebula, which contains the famous pillars of creation, the Omega Nebula, the Triffid Nebula, and the Lagoon Nebula. In the 1950s, a team of astronomers made rough distance measurements to some of the stars in these nebula and were able to infer the existence of the Sagittarius arm. Their work provided some of the first evidence of our galaxy's spiral structure. Distances are among the most difficult things to measure in astronomy, said co-author Alberto Krohn-Martens, an astrophysicist and lecturer in informatics at the University of California and a member of the Gaia Data Processing and Analysis Consortium. It is only the recent direct distance measurements from Gaia that make the geometry of this new structure so apparent. In the new study, researchers also relied on a catalogue of more than 100,000 newborn stars discovered by Spitzer in a survey of the galaxy called the Galactic Legacy Infrared Midplane Survey Extraordinaire, GLIMPSE. When we put the Gaia and Spitzer data together and finally see this detailed three-dimensional map, we can see that there's quite a bit of complexity in this region that just hasn't been apparent before, said Kuhn. Astronomers don't yet fully understand what causes spiral arms to form in galaxies like ours. Even though we can't see the Milky Way's full structure, the ability to measure the motion of individual stars is useful for understanding this phenomenon. The stars in the newly discovered structure likely formed around the same time, in the same general area, and were uniquely influenced by the forces acting within the galaxy, including gravity and shear due to the galaxy's rotation. Ultimately, this is a reminder that there are many uncertainties about the large-scale structure of the Milky Way, and we need to look at the details if we want to understand that bigger picture, said one of the paper's co-authors, Robert Benjamin, an astrophysicist at the University of Wisconsin. This structure is a small piece of the Milky Way, but it could tell us something significant about the galaxy as a whole. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, broadcasting on 1431 AM and 104.7 FM. A team of astronomers has released new observations of nearby galaxies that resemble colorful cosmic fireworks. The images obtained with the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescopes, the VLT, show different components of the galaxies in distinct colors, allowing astronomers to pinpoint the locations of young stars and the gas they warm up around them. By combining these new observations with data from the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ALMA, in which ESO is a partner, the team is helping shed new light on what triggers gas to form stars. Astronomers know that stars are born in clouds of gas, but what sets off star formation and how galaxies as a whole play into it remains a mystery. To understand this process, a team of researchers has observed various nearby galaxies with powerful telescopes on the ground and in space, scanning for different galactic regions involved in stellar births. For the first time, we are resolving individual units of star formation over a wide range of locations and environments in a sample that well represents the different types of galaxies, says Eric Emselem, an astronomer at ESO in Germany and lead of the VLT-based observations conducted as part of the Physics at High Angular Resolutions in Nearby Galaxies, FANGS, project. 
We can directly observe the gas that gives birth to stars. We see the young stars themselves, and we witness their evolution through various phases. Emsalem and his team have now released their latest set of galactic scans taken with the multi-unit spectroscopic explorer MUSE instrument on the VLT in the Atacama Desert in Chile. They used MUSE to trace newborn stars and the warm gas around them, which is illuminated and heated up by the stars and acts as a smoking gun of ongoing star formation. The new MUSE images are now being combined with other observations of the same galaxies taken with ALMA and released earlier this year. ALMA, which is also located in Chile, is especially well-suited to mapping cold glass clouds, the parts of galaxies that provide the raw material out of which stars form. By combining MUSE and ALMA images, astronomers can examine the galactic regions where star formation is happening, compared to where it is expected to happen, so as to better understand what triggers, boosts, or or holds back the birth of new stars. The resulting images are stunning, offering a spectacularly colourful insight into stellar nurseries in our neighbouring galaxies. There are many mysteries we want to unravel, says Catherine Krechel from the University of Heidelberg in Germany and FANG's team's member. Are stars more often born in specific regions of their host galaxies, and if so, why? And after stars are born, how does their evolution influence the formation of new generations of stars? Well, the answers to these questions and others will await further development of the data that the astronomers are in possession of. Right, well, that's going to do it for our program this month. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. Unfortunately, we are still closed until the alert levels drop to level one. But until then, thanks once again for listening to Starry Nights. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers. Hawke's Bay Community Access Radio Station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.